Peter Mansbridge here with the latest episode of the Bridge Daily. It's hump day, yes, Wednesday of week 24. We're halfway home. And hump day around here means the race next door, the podcast within a podcast. Hear that new addition to the music? That's Bella. That's Bella the dog. Bella, the Nova Scotia duck tolling retriever. And when Bella barks, that means there's someone at the door. But that's okay. These days, as you know, when there's somebody at the door, they basically just leave it there. They kind of get it. We're into this period of no touch contact or no contact touch or whatever that phrase is. Anyway, moving on. Bella will head back to her dog bed anytime now. And the barking, well, you can hear it's already stopped. All right, so it is the race next door day, and we're going to it in just a minute. A couple of minutes, actually. Uh, because I want to give you a sense of what we're going to do after the race next door with Bruce Anderson, right? Chair of Abacus Data, one of the country's leading research and polling firms, and Bruce, of course, has been in the business for many years and is helping us try to take a different kind of perspective than we'd see from the domestic news services in the United States. We're kind of looking at the race from next door. Kind of over the fence. We're looking at it. See what it's like. And talk about a couple of things. And we have a couple of interesting things to talk about today. But when it's finished, I got some really interesting stats for you. It's not a poll. Different kind of research. Dealing with real numbers. And it's the amount of money the two parties, the two presidential campaigns, have spent so far on select topics on Facebook. Now, remember, we never kind of looked at these things before 2016. And it was after 2016, we went, oh my gosh, look what they did on Facebook. So I've got some interesting numbers for you about what the Trump campaign and what the Biden campaign are spending on ads on Facebook on different topics. I think you're going to find it interesting. But first up, we've got the race next door. Here it is. All right, that familiar tune. Hail to the Chief gets us started on another race next door. And we're going to start, Bruce, with this idea of um, Trump as the great communicator. He thinks he's Ronald Reagan the second, where, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, he's nothing like the great communicator in which Reagan was. I mean, Trump believes that, you know, he got his big push with the American people, with the uh, uh, television program The Apprentice, and that he was the star of it, and that he created it, and et cetera, et cetera, when, in fact, it was Mark Burnett who was the executive producer of The Apprentice, just like he was the survivor and a variety of other reality TV programs, who was the star of The Apprentice. You didn't see him on air, but he created it, and he, you know, he 
picked Trump for a reason. Uh, and it worked for a number of years. There's no question about that. But then it started to slide off. And when Trump ended up going running for the presidency, uh, he had to leave the program. He was replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It didn't work either. And that was at the end of The Apprentice. But Trump believed that he could and has shown at times a certain skill in backdrops for television productions as president. I'm not so sure it's working this week. Some of the things that I've seen in the uh, convention so far uh, look pretty much like amateur hour, and some of the things I think have, have backfired to a degree. But overall, his belief that he's the great communicator, he understands television, he knows how to make television work. Where do you come down on this? Well, you know, Peter, I, I, I'm really interested in this subject and looking forward to talking about it with you because you have such... Uh, great experience in understanding how TV work, how TV works, how images work. And I've kind of spent a lot of time in the political world trying to figure out how to make TV work for candidates over the years, too. And I, I do think this is really quite interesting what's going on. I'm definitely more where you are. I kind of looked at the last few nights and compared it to what we saw last week at the Democratic Convention. And and I, I'm glad you raised this this whole question of Reagan because for me one of the things that Ronald Reagan did well lots of people have lots of taken lots of issue with some of the policy choices that he made but he made conservatism sound hopeful and he used uh, metaphors like mourning in America and when I looked at the Trump show uh, it felt angry it felt dark it felt like people who were uh, determined to kind of yell out their anger and their rage. And so just from the standpoint of, is this a show that's going to kind of please and uplift you and rally you around their cause? Or is it a show that's going to kind of excite you and, and anger you and make you uh, kind of want to be angry at your neighbor who might vote Democrat? I think it's more the latter. I, I think that he is a, you know, he thinks he's good at TV, but he thinks he's good at everything. And uh uh, I, when I look at how this TV show come across, I, you know, his cast is essentially his family and people who are so sycophantic with his message that they're saying things that challenge their own credibility. His set uh, looks like it's mostly the White House. Um, and, you know, I think that some people might look at that and say, well, that really kind of adorns him with a sense of legitimacy and power. Um and others might look at it and say it's an abuse, and many people have said that it's an abuse. Uh, you know, so I think on balance, his his show, his reality show, might be uh, fairly well scripted to appeal to his base audience. But I don't think it's necessarily well designed to reach out to more people. And all of the polling that I'm looking at says he still needs to reach out to more people. To me, you know, when I watch him, especially this week, it, it just looks all so phony. I mean, that, that's set up in the White House with the, uh, with the new Americans, the immigrants who had become American citizens yesterday, uh, which is a beautiful ceremony. I mean, we see them in, in Canada all the time, and yet this made it look somehow because Trump was kind of standing there looking goofy at the side and saying strange things uh, while it was all going on just be, seemed to belittle the whole thing. Now, on something else that he does, and I'll, you know, I'll make this comment as, <laughs> as one who lived by the teleprompter for, for so many years when I was doing the National, is that this guy, for all his talk, 
still cannot read a teleprompter. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not that challenging an art, quite frankly. You do it a couple of times <laughs> and you can kind of figure out how to do it. But he hasn't. He always comes off looking like it is the first time he's ever read the words that he's reading off the prompter. Now, I don't believe that's true. I believe he probably has seen the script. But when he's looking at it, it comes off like he's never seen it before. And he looks like he doesn't believe what he's reading. And sometimes he shouldn't because <laughs> what's being written is pretty bizarre. But for a guy who claims that this is his vehicle, he hasn't perf perfected that. He's not bad sometimes ad-libbing um, in terms of his performance in terms of what he says gets him in trouble and that's why he has to go to the prompter and why his aides say read what's written there um but you know when he's ad-libbing he's kind of he can be convincing even if the words aren't but when he's reading it to me it's just uh, like it's a disaster um yeah yeah sorry go on Matt, you know, I overall, I think uh, we probably tend to agree. It hasn't been a great performance uh, so far this week. I mean, it's halfway through it as we, as we uh, record this podcast, and maybe he'll put, pull something out of the hat. Um, Melania Trump was much better last uh, last night than she had been four years ago when she basically read Michelle Obama's speech, rewritten for her. Um, she seemed, you know. She showed some sympathy towards those who have uh, have died or have suffered through the COVID crisis, which was a first considering all the uh, rage and raving on the part of other uh, members of that family uh, over the last couple of days. But as a TV epic show, I, I agree. I, so far, it doesn't compare with what we witnessed last week. But, you know, people's, no. mind, people's minds change quickly. You know, something can happen to suddenly turn all that around. Yeah, fair enough. I, I do think the other thing is that, that last week there was a, at least a pretty significant effort to say, what's the future agenda of the country to be? And I think the Republicans made a pretty clear statement by saying they're not going to have a platform this year. Uh, and it really speaks to the, the instinct, it seems, that President Trump has, which is that he does fine if he doesn't prepare. And that the country doesn't really need a plan. It just needs him at the helm making decisions on the fly based on his instincts, based on, you know, what he learned in the real estate business over many years. And so that's why I think he doesn't really uh, work very well with a teleprompter because he doesn't really kind of own the ideas in the, in the same way that politicians do if they, if they kind of dig into this idea of a speech where I'm going to figure out how to find that next 6% of voters that I really need to close a deal on. Um, when I look at some of the other members of the cast of this show, uh, you mentioned Melania, uh, you know, I felt like some of the coverage of her was a little bit, um, you know, is very, there was a lot of praise. And in some instances, there wasn't a lot of, well, how do these words really stack up against how she's kind of conducted herself over the last four years? But that, that apart, at least she had a script that was meant to reach out to those voters who said, I've been really frustrated. I voted for Trump, but I've been frustrated with the way he conducts himself on these issues of, of, uh, of race, for example. And, and so her, her message was on point for them, but I felt like he was doing what he does, which is uh, I'll come, I'll show up, I'll read something. I won't look like I'm really committed to it. It'll seem contrived, 
but I'll get through it and, and pretty soon I'll be able to give these kind of stem winding, meandering, chaotic speeches that I love to give to the base. Okay, you mentioned numbers a couple of times uh, in that, and so let's move to numbers in terms of polls, because we're going to be and already are being inundated with all kinds of uh, facts and figures from the various different polling agencies in the United States that are doing research, whether it's for networks or universities or papers or what have you. Um, And what I need your expertise here for now is to try and help guide us on what we should actually be looking at and paying attention to and what we should perhaps maybe not ignore but give it a lot less weight and i'll i'll use an example this morning i was watching one of the uh morning programs out of the u.s and there was a uh, you know a whole raft of new numbers to uh, contemplate and they started off with the national numbers in the u.s and as they read them with biden with a fairly healthy lead i can't remember what it was 10 or 12 points um it's kind of been that way ever since your poll a month or six weeks ago, which suggested they were up into double-digit lead. Anyway, the point they were making was ignore the national polls. They don't mean anything because they're weighted so heavily with, um, you know, the Democratic uh, numbers in, in all along the coastlines, especially in California and in New York, that it kind of throws the national number out of whack. Um, in a similar way, kind of to what we saw a year ago in the Canadian election, where the Conservatives had huge numbers, in uh, especially in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and in the end, in fact, they won the national numbers in terms of popular vote or the you know number of votes cast, but it didn't help them in the overall stats in terms of seats uh, won. And the same kind of thing uh, is happening in the states in the sense that. Ignore the national numbers, focus on the battleground states. Okay, I kind of get that, I understand that. But le- let me go to the expert, you. First of all, should we ignore the national numbers? Should we sort of say, okay, that's very interesting, but it really doesn't mean anything right now? No, not necessarily. I think the you know, the comparisons of where Biden is relative to where Hillary Clinton was at the same time in the cycle four years ago, it's useful to look at that. And at this point, at least you'd come away with a sense of, okay, he's doing better than she was at this point. Um, and so that should, all things being equal, translate into an advantage for him in those swing states that matter. But the general point of don't overload on those uh, nationwide kind of uh, Biden-Trump horse race numbers is is certainly true. The focus really should be on the um, on a combination, I guess, of that presidential approval number, which really is a surrogate for, that is a national number, it's a surrogate for how many people are unhappy with Trump right now. And I tend to like to look at the, the views of independence because in, in the American system, as, as many of our listeners will know, there are people who are registered Democrats, registered Republicans, but also independents. And uh, the level of unhappiness with Trump among independents has been the biggest threat to his reelection and the thing that he needed to work the most on. So I would look at that. But beyond that, absolutely, uh, I would pay attention to the, the, the polls in the biggest states in terms of um, being swing states and also states that deliver a lot of electoral college votes. And, uh, you know, I was looking at the top six state, states, I think, in terms of uh, the number of electoral college votes. California, Texas, 
New York, Florida, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. Now, only a couple of those are are swing states. Some people think that Texas might be in that category now, but Florida is and Pennsylvania is. California and New York are clearly Democratic states and look like they're going to continue. So the focus really should be on the on the swing states, including uh, a couple of others beyond those ones that I just mentioned. You know, the people tend to say, if Trump's going to win re-election, it has to start in Florida. That if he can't win Florida, he can't put together a winning ticket. Is it that simple? No, I don't think so, actually. There was an interesting piece this morning that I shared on Twitter uh, I think I saw it on 538.com. And for our listeners who are interested in digging into the data, uh, there are two sites that I would recommend, 538.com and realclearpolitics.com, which kind of aggregate polling information. And 538 does a kind of an analysis of, uh, of the polling in a little bit more depth. And they were basically saying there are different kinds of swing states and that, uh, you know, Florida in particular, uh, has a few different things that make it kind of unique from the other swing states. One is that it's got a disproportionately older population, which tends to vote more for the Republicans. Uh, another, though, is that it has a, a high number of, uh, of Hispanic uh, and people of color uh, voters in its base. Uh, and that should normally lead Democratic, but um, the Cuban-American population normally votes Republican. So there are different dynamics in Florida as compared to uh, some of the other swing states where we see effects like in Texas of uh, more people moving into the state, more urbanization, higher levels of education, high black and Hispanic or Hispanic voters uh, in significant numbers. Those are the factors that are kind of pushing those states a little bit closer to the uh, uh, to the Democratic column, Arizona a little bit like that as well. So I, I do find that that's interesting. If, if you sort of said there are six different races that are going on and, and sure, Trump uh, will have a problem winning if he can't win Florida. But that's not the same in my mind as saying Florida is just like the other swing states. It's a little bit unique. We're just over two months away from the election. So we're now into the kind of the hardcore part of the election campaign. The, you know, the tradition is it kind of starts Labor Day and and goes full bore right through. Once the conventions are over, once the summer is kind of considered to be over because of Labor Day. Um, can things move considerably and fast in an election like this? Um, you know, the way we've tended to look at American politics, you know, very roughly over time has been sort of you know, each side is somewhere around 45. And it's that other 10 points that make the difference as to winners and losers. Um, there seem to be a little more spread open than that right now. Um, but can there be in this kind of a campaign a significant movement one way or the other and quickly? Well, I think there can. Um I think that if I were if I were focused on what are the big factors that could change things, uh, I think President Trump is betting heavily on two things. One is that if he just says stock market keeps going up, pandemic deaths keep going down, that enough of those voters 
who may be anxious about democratic policies, especially taxation policies, will kind of stay in his column or migrate to his column. Um, but the big bet for him there is that the economy won't actually hit a bump in the road for most people who don't participate in the stock market caused by a second wave of pandemic infections. And related to that, I would say the big gamble that we feel here in Canada, too, is what's going to happen when kids go back to schools? Because there are a lot of parents. We're putting out a poll in, in Canada that shows half of parents with kids who are of age to go to primary secondary schools don't really want their kids to go back to the classroom next week. Uh, they're worried that they're going to get sick. So I think that's a giant factor. I think the other thing is is people are going to tune in to the debate between uh, Biden and Trump. I forget if they decided how many they're going to have now. I know that Trump said he wanted more. If I was him after watching Biden last week, I wouldn't want more debates with Biden. But um, whatever number they're going to be, there's going to be at least one. And I think that that might be a situation where people take the measure of these two uh, these two people. And Biden has been pitching himself as a better man, uh, in addition to being the better man in this particular case. And Trump has been trying to cast Biden as um, almost a mental incompetent at this point because of uh, age and dementia and that sort of thing. And and uh, I think he's taking a big gamble on that because I don't think that uh, Mr. Biden's probably going to perform that way. And, and Mr. Trump might look under pressure uh, to be uh, a little bit less than clear uh, in some moments. So I think those are two factors that could be significant and could move numbers in a fairly rapid way. All right. We're going to leave it at that for this week. Lots to uh, lots to chew on there. Lots of interesting thoughts about the uh, the state of the campaign for the presidency in the U.S., the race next door. Thanks very much, Bruce. Talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon, Peter. Well, week three of the race next door. Hope you enjoyed it. And we're always happy to hear your ideas on topics we should discuss. And many of you have sent many ideas in, all of which we look at. So don't be shy. You can reach us at the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Now, I did tell you that I wanted to. Tell, you know, release, it's not me releasing, the Facebook has released this data on what the two presidential campaigns are spending on Facebook in ads on specific topics. Remember, 2016 and all the talk about how social media was used and how the Trump campaign was using it much more effectively than the Hillary Clinton campaign. And they focused on Facebook and how they were putting stuff out on Facebook. Some of it was even true, but there was a lot of it and it circulated and had its desired effect. So who's learned what from that experience? What are the two campaigns spending now? Well, you're going to find this interesting. The topic, this is just Facebook, remember. Ads on Facebook. The topic that is generating the most revenue for Facebook 
is criminal justice. Who's spending all the money? 100% Trump. $6 million so far. Now, that doesn't sound like much. But this isn't like a television campaign. It actually may be much more effective than a television campaign. But it's less expensive, too. $6 million, 100% from, Joe, uh, from um, Donald Trump's campaign. Defund the police, $4.8 million, 100%. Donald Trump. Fake news, $4.7 million, 100%. Donald Trump. $4.6 million, socialism, 100%. Donald Trump. Immigration, $2.3 million, 100%. Donald Trump. $1.3 million on taxes, 100% Donald Trump. So you got all those, the first seven of them, all the money is being spent by the Trump campaign. Now you start to find a little bit elsewhere. On the economy, $1.3 million total. Looks like about 95% of it from the Trump campaign. COVID-19, aha, this is different. It's just like last night watching that convention. You don't talk about COVID-19 if you're a Donald Trump person. With the exception of Melania Trump. But overall, only just under a million dollars has been spent on ads on Facebook about COVID-19. And about three quarters of that comes from the Biden campaign. Big tech. Well, first of all, healthcare. On healthcare, eight hundred and sixty-one thousand spent on ads. About three quarters of it from the Trump campaign. Big tech is the only other one where the Democrats. Well, it's not the only other one, but in terms of relatively big spending, three quarters of it coming from the Biden campaign. Dark money. Well, I guess we're talking corruption within the system. Well, that's all coming from the Democrats, obviously telling stories about the Republicans. But that's only $100,000 they've spent. College affordability, only 55000 spent on ads. And on Facebook, targeting, you know, isn't it supposed to be mostly younger people on Facebook? Well, they're not doing much of a job. In buying ads for that, only $55,000 spent. And climate, only $27,000, all by the Democrats. So you look at issues that to some people are really important, like climate, like college affordability, like COVID. The Democrats are spending more than... They are their opponents, but they're not spending much. The big money, if you want to call it that, that's being spent on Facebook is coming from the Republicans, and it's about their issues that they're trying to make everybody think about, right? That their country's falling apart, and that there are riots in the streets, and they're going to, if the Democrats win, they'll move people into your neighborhood that that you should be afraid of. So they're focusing on criminal justice, defund the police, 
fake news, socialism, immigration. I don't know. I think those numbers tell an interesting story, and they're ones we're going to look back at when this election's over to see whether it changed in the final two months and how it changed. The Democrats now have a lot of money. They raised millions and millions of dollars last week on their convention. How are they going to spend it in the next two months? All right, there you go. There's your Bridge Daily for Hump Day for Wednesday of Week 24. As I said, you can always write the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been the Bridge Daily. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Mm-hmm.